There was a rabbi and a priest who got into a huge car accident, and both of them miraculously crawl out of their cars, and the rabbi looks at the priest and says, wow, I mean, look at that. Both of our cars are completely demolished, and yet we are relatively unharmed. And I think that we should take this as a sign from God that we should become good friends. The priest looking at the total carnage of both cars agrees. And so the rabbi gets down and he rummages through his destroyed car and he pulls out a bottle of wine. And he says, again, look at this. I mean, the car is completely demolished. And yet here is this bottle of fine wine, completely unbroken. I think that this is a sign that we should toast to our new friendship. And so the rabbi hands the bottle to the priest who uncorks it, takes a few big chugs from it, hands it back to the rabbi. The rabbi immediately puts the cork back on and hands it to the priest. And the priest, confused, asks, aren't you going to drink some? The rabbi says, you know, I think I'll wait till the police get here. (laughs) Some friends are better than others. Uh, I want to ask you this morning to think about what is the longest lasting friendship that you have? Maybe it's a high school friend, a college friend. Any of you have friends that you made back in grade school that you're still friends with today? A few of you? Some of our our first service people, older people, had friends, lifelong friends, all the way back from uh, elementary school. You know, I think when it comes to friendship, you, you ask that question, like, who is the kind of friend that you could call at two in the morning if something big came up? Some of my closest friends in the world are some of my fellow preachers and ministers that uh, that I've been friends with for years. And uh, every year we go on a preaching planning retreat and we talk about the sermons that we want to preach, the topics we want to talk about. Some of us collaborate. I'm actually collaborating with a few of them for this series through uh, David. And uh, we actually have a text today, though, that goes all throughout the rest of the year. And it often goes off the rails. But uh, I, in that group, if you've ever texted me, uh, you'll maybe know that your phone almost automatically always autocorrects Bryce to Bruce. And so they have just stopped fixing it. And I am Bruce to that. My closest friends here, don't even call me the right name. You might be wondering, why all this talk of friendship this morning? I think the church as a whole, the church, capital C church as a whole, has done a great job talking about community. Most people know, especially, you know, post-2020, how important it is to have community, how important it is to have people in our lives. But I think that we also kind of miss out on some of the ideas of friendship. I think when we talk about community, it's, we talk about doing life together and having home groups and discipleship, life groups, small groups, whatever you want to call them, talking about community, spending time together. And I think that's great. I mean, we want to strengthen those ministries, do a better job of that at South Lake in the, in, in the near future. But I think with that, I think we also need a lot more of a robust theology of friendship. Friendship is something that all of us, even us introverts, need. And and this isn't just warm and fuzzy feel-goodery. This has actually been proven scientifically through studies that friendship actually is of great benefit, not just to our, our feelings, but to our very well-being. And studies have found that people in isolation are three times more likely to die sooner than those with close friends. They've even found that those with bad health habits, you know, smoking or eating poorly, alcohol abuse... Uh, all those things, but have good relationships, relational connections, lived longer, significantly longer than those who have good health habits but live in isolation. Which I think only leads us to one conclusion, that it's better to eat Twinkies with good friends than to eat broccoli alone. Can I get an amen? (laughs) And yet, 
And yet, despite knowing this, all this to be true about friendship, about community, in 1990, a study was done, and they found that 3% of adults said they had no close friendships. In 2021, that number has increased to 12%. And thank goodness that still the vast majority have someone close to them, but I think we see that number on the rise as people begin to neglect these close relationships. I mean, even Jesus, when he came to earth, surrounded himself with 12 men who, yes, were his disciples, but I think were also his friends. And so with that being said, I want to look at friendship this morning as we continue our series through this life of David that we've been studying. We've looked at David, who was one, called one after God's own heart, and seeing what sets him apart to be the king that God called him to be. And one of the things that sets him apart was his friendships, particularly this morning, his friendship with a man named Jonathan. And how I want to look at this morning how we can develop those same kind of genuine friendships in our own lives. Now, I know this is a summer series, and so week to week, you might be traveling or out on vacation or maybe missed what had come before. So I just want to kind of set the context for us. Last week, we looked at that story that almost everybody knows. If you don't, it's the story of David and Goliath. David, this young teenager, goes up against this Philistine giant. And in this moment, Israel and and their entire army, including their current king, Saul, are, are cowering under the taunts of Goliath. The story turns out David shows up. He refuses to allow this Philistine to continue to slander God's honor. And so he takes him out with a rock to the noggin and he cuts his head off. And and so you have to imagine at this point, following this battle, the army is feeling pretty good. I mean, granted, none of them did any work except for David and God through him, but they feel good about what has happened. They've neutralized the Philistine threat. They've retained a key piece of strategic geography. I mean, David is a hero. And so they're coming back home, and all the ladies come swooning after these strapping army men, and they begin to sing and dance. We see in 1 Samuel 18, this this song they sing. Verse 7, it says, As they danced, they sang, Saul has slain his thousands, and David his tens of thousands. Saul was very angry. This refrain displeased him greatly. They have credited David with tens of thousands, he thought, but me with only thousands. What more can he get but the kingdom? And from that time on, Saul kept a close eye on David. We see that Saul begins to recognize David's rise to prominence. And we know the the background of this in 1 Samuel 13, that David has been anointed as the next king of Israel, that God has told Saul because of his disobedience and his rebellion that the kingdom will be stripped away from him. And yet, as all do in power, they want to cling to it. And so Saul, recognizing the writing is on the wall, still wants to maintain control. And so he keeps this eye on David. It begins with this song. They begin to sing Saul's praise that he has killed his thousands. And I can't help but think he probably thinks, I I like the sound of that. But David has killed his tens of thousands. And I can only imagine how this would have infuriated Saul. I mean, he is the king. Before Goliath, David was just a shepherd boy, a delivery driver. And now he's the talk of the town. And so we see Saul begin to grow jealous of David. Jealous to the extent that in just a few verses later where we just ended, Saul will throw a spear at David in an attempt to pin him against the wall. Twice. We see that this will set the stage for the next couple of weeks for David's story as Saul begins this murderous pursuit of David, attempting to kill him no less than 11 times. But we'll focus on Saul more next week. This morning, I want to focus on Saul's son, Jonathan. There's perhaps no better picture of friendship in the Bible than that that we see between David and Jonathan. 
Even when these two had every reason to be opposed to each other, as we'll look at in a little bit, Jonathan and David show us a picture of friendship that I think can show us a few ways of how we can also foster these genuine friendships in our lives. And I think the first quality that we want to look at as modeled by them is that true friendship requires loyalty. Right from the start, we see the extent of their friendship. Chapter 18, verse 1 says, After David had finished talking with Saul, Jonathan became one in spirit with David, and he loved him as himself. From that day, Saul kept David with him and did not let him return to his family. And Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. Now, depending on your translation, and other translations will say that the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. And I know this might surprise you. I'm not much of a knitter, but I do love that description of David and Jonathan's friendship. I think in a world where people make friends by clicking a little blue button on the internet that can just as easily be unclicked, I think that we need more friendships that are described as knit together. And this isn't just a cutesy phrase that waxes poetically. We, we see this kind of friendship in action. David goes to Jonathan and has the whole, hey, your dad tried to make me into a human shish kebab conversation. And Jonathan actually goes and confronts his father. He says to him, look, David hasn't done anything wrong. I mean, he even put his life on the line when fighting Goliath, and you were cheering him on. And so in chapter 19, verse 6, it says, And Saul listened to the voice of Jonathan. Saul swore, As the Lord lives, he shall not be put to death. And Jonathan called David, and Jonathan reported to him all these things. And Jonathan brought David to Saul, and he was in his presence as before. I look at this, and, you know, it's just a conversation, but I think it probably would have been a lot easier for Jonathan to tell David, I mean, look, I, I know my dad tried to kill you and everything, but he's my dad and he's the king. And if I tried to say something, he might just get upset with me, kick me out, you know, whatever. Maybe we can just be pen pals. But Jonathan sticks by David. And eventually he does so even at great personal cost. Just two chapters later in chapter 20, David comes to Jonathan and he says, I mean, hey, your, your dad's trying to kill me again. Jonathan says, well, you know what? No, no way. I already took care of that back in chapter 18. You're good. Everything's fine. But to get to the bottom of it, Jonathan proposes this plan to David. He, David is expected to be at a feast in Saul's house over the next few nights. And so Jonathan says this to him, chapter 20, verse 18. He says, tomorrow is the new moon and you will be missed because your seat will be empty. On the third day, go down quickly to the place where you hid yourself when the matter was in hand and remain beside the stone heap. And I will shoot three arrows to the side of it, as though I shot at a mark. And behold, I will send the boy, saying, Go find the arrows. If I say to the boy, Look, the arrows are on this side of you, take them, then you are to come. For, the, for as the Lord lives, it is safe for you, and there is no danger. But if I say to the youth, Look, the arrows are beyond you, then go, for the Lord has sent you away. And as for the matter of which you and I have spoken, behold, the Lord is between you and me forever. David will the plan is to stay away from this feast. And if Saul becomes angry, it will become apparent to Jonathan that Saul is angry because he planned to do David harm. He missed out on the opportunity to kill him. And so the first night goes by and Saul's absence, or David's absence is noted by Saul, but not mentioned. But the second night, Saul realizes that he has been duped and the truth is made clear to Jonathan. Verse 30 says, Then Saul's anger was kindled against Jonathan, and he said to him, You son of a perverse, rebellious woman, do I not know that you have chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame and the shame of your mother's nakedness? 
For as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, neither you nor your kingdom shall be established. Therefore send and bring him to me, for he shall surely die. Then Jonathan answered Saul, his father, Why should he be put to death? What has he done? But Saul hurled his spear at him to strike him. So Jonathan knew that his father was determined to put David to death. And Jonathan rose from the table in fierce anger and ate no food the second day of the month. For he was grieved for David because his father had disgraced him. We see the truth is discovered. The plot is uncovered. Another spear is thrown at Jonathan. He gets, almost gets himself impaled as a result. And so he executes this plan with David. He goes out. He fires the arrows. He tells the retriever to go out farther. And David knows that his life as he knew it is over as he begins to go on the run. Now, I'm guessing that your friendships have never led to spears being thrown at you. Any, anybody that's not true of? I think, I think so, but I never know. At least not literal spears. But I do think that maintaining good friendships is not without its challenges. I think what sets David and Jonathan's friendship apart is that they are committed to being there for each other regardless of what happens. Regardless of the stakes at play, Jonathan and David remain loyal to each other. And I think that leads us to ask the question, are we loyal in our friendships? Now, I do know that occasionally there are toxic friendships that need to fizzle out, and that is a good and healthy thing. But for the most part, we are to be loyal friends. Are you a loyal friend? Are you there in good times and in bad? Are you committed to working through differences and disagreements? The world will tell you that being a loyal friend is foolish. I mean, you can have friends, but the minute that they disagree with you or disappoint you or, or discourage you, well, then they're just a bad friend and you need a new one. But true friendships require this kind of loyalty, to be committed and sticking through the thick and the thin so that we can see each other draw closer to Jesus. I think one of the ways that we demonstrate this kind of loyalty is the second quality that we look at this morning, that true friendship requires honesty. Now, it might not seem obvious at first, but entrenched all throughout this story of Jonathan and David's friendship, throughout these three chapters, 18, 19, and 20, we see entrenched in this is their pursuit of the truth. David and Jonathan spend time discussing and listening and considering each other's viewpoints to discover what is true. Is Saul trying to kill David? And Jonathan at first says, there's no way. I mean, he tells me everything. I mean, sure, he's already thrown multiple spears at you and plotted your demise, but I've taken care of all of that. And David says, listen, man, I know you think that, but your dad is determined to have a David skin rug on his floor, okay? Like, this is happening. He says, as surely as the Lord lives, your dad, I'm steps from death. And in the midst of this, we learn what you already know to be true if you have good friends. And that's this, our friends help us see the truth that we can't often see on our own. Our friends help us see the truth that we can't see on our own. And that's not just true of Jonathan and David. I think one of the messages that we see throughout David's life is that God guides and protects David through his friends. In chapter 13, when David is this forgotten son in a field, Samuel comes to anoint him as the next king and tells him, God's got big plans for you. Later, when David jumps to a rash decision and considers taking a man's life for disrespecting him, Abigail tells him what a fool he'll be to go through with it. Later still, when David steals another man's wife and tries to cover it up by having her husband murdered, Nathan is there to call him to repentance. 
In 2 Samuel 23, there's a whole chapter devoted to naming David's mighty men, those who, the men who had stood shoulder to shoulder with him in battle and in life's worst moments, who had been there with him in his biggest times of struggle. And I think so often what keeps David on track of fulfilling God's call on his life to be the king that he is supposed to be is the quality of his friendships. I love the way my friend and one of my professors, Michael DeFazio, put it. He said, the David we know and love is not the David we know and love without his friends. You take away his friends, and I don't think he's a Saul 2.0. I think he's way worse. You take David's skill and Saul's soul, and that's scary. David, what keeps him on track, what keeps him, to this, guy, this man after God's own heart, is the quality of his friendships. Those who will speak truth into his life when he is going off track. So again, I have to ask if you're willing to speak truth, hard truths to your friends. Our first reaction is that, like, yeah, of course. I mean, what kind of friend would I be if I didn't? But really think about it. Are you willing to call them out on their mistakes, their sins? Are you willing to tell them that God wants something better for them than what they're settling for? Are you willing to be that prophetic voice that comes from a close relationship? I think back several years ago uh, to one of our previous ministries. My wife and I, we're, we're kind of in a bit of a rough season of ministry. It sometimes happens. And we had made some offhand comments of you know, considerations and looking at other ministry opportunities elsewhere. And we had a friend reach out to us and even say, I, I feel like God has asked me to say this to you and it's, very uncomfortable for me, but I want to be faithful what he's asked me to do. And she went on to a lengthy, I mean, a length of conversation to tell us that we either needed to shift our mindset and decide to love where God had placed us or move on because this waffling was keeping our hearts from being fully invested. And to this day, I think that is some of the best advice we'd ever received. We were actually, because of that, able to stay there for several more years and experience some really fruitful ministry, all because a friend decided to be faithful to God's call to speak truth, a tough truth to us. But I think we tend to think of, of truth and love as in opposition to each other. I don't want to tell them that. I might get their feelings hurt. I might think I don't love them. But I think that telling someone the truth, lavished with grace, is the most loving thing that we can do for someone. Do you love your friends enough to make honesty a core tenant of your friendship? The third and final quality we see of friendship is that true friendship requires sacrifice. Remember the context of this whole story, sparked by Saul's jealousy of David? You know, Saul has killed his thousands, David has ten thousands. I didn't just tell you that because I wanted you to catch up on the story. I wanted to show you that there's someone else who could have easily been given over to jealousy of David. Jonathan himself. Jonathan was already known in Israel for his military courage. On one occasion, just him and his shield bearer had overtaken an entire Philistine camp. Just these two. Jonathan was a national hero, maybe even a hero of a younger David. Jonathan's courage and skill had saved Israel on a number of occasions. And if that wasn't enough, being Saul's son, he would have been next in line for the throne. I mean, the fact that these two form a deep friendship at all goes against every convention of their day. Jonathan has every political reason to let David die. 
He doesn't even have to do it himself. He doesn't have to get his hands dirty. He just has to let Saul do what he wants to do, and the throne is one day his. The same way in chapter 20, as David and Jonathan are talking about uh, this, having this conversation about Saul's motives and where, what David will do and where he will go, David makes a covenant, a covenant, a promise with Jonathan that he will keep Jonathan's family alive no matter what happens. Jonathan knows that David will become the king, and so he entrusts to him the, 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 the well-being of his family. And David has every political reason not to promise to keep Jonathan's family alive. I mean, these very well could be rivals to the throne. But instead of bitterness and rivalry and resentment, we see a friendship of sacrificial loyalty. Again, chapter 18 says, After David had finished talking with Saul, Jonathan became one in spirit with David, and he loved him as himself. From that day, Saul kept David with him and did not let him return home to his family. And Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. Jonathan took off the robe he was wearing and gave it to David, along with his tunic and even his sword, his bow, and his belt. Now, if you're not sure what's happening here, this seems kind of weird. Like, what, fifth grade girls give friendship bracelets? Jonathan gives, like, a friendship robe? Like, what's happening here? But the robe that Jonathan is wearing is the robe of a crown prince. What Jonathan is doing here is sacrificing his claim to the throne because he recognizes God's anointing of David. Jonathan is wearing the robe saying, I am next in line, and he gives that to David. Along with that, he gives him his sword, his bow, and his belt to symbolize his power, to symbolize his ability to take David's life as a rival. He gives that to David. Jonathan is making a statement here that he has David's back 100% as he sacrifices whatever he thought he might imagine for his future as the son of a king. And I don't want to over-spiritualize what's happening here, but I do think in Jonathan we see a foreshadowing of Jesus. Would it surprise you that if you're one of his followers, Jesus calls you his friend? The king of the universe who spoke everything into creation calls you his friend. John 15, 13 says, Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends. For everything that I learned from my father, I have made known to you. And I think in a similar way to Jonathan, Jesus, though a king, would also step down from his throne and remove his robe of heavenly splendor and glory to take on human flesh. And like Jonathan giving over his weapons of power, Jesus limits himself. He chooses not to exercise some of his divine powers and attributes so that he would be able to lay his life down in sacrifice, a sacrifice for me and for you. Because of our sin, our wrongdoing, our, our faults, he would die in our place. And the reason that Jesus does this is because he desires to obey his Father and he desires to be your friend. Now please understand, this doesn't mean that Jesus is your idiot buddy who's up for anything you want to do. He's still king, but he wants to be your friend. He desires to have a relationship with you and I can tell you that there is no better friend than Jesus. So I want to encourage you this morning not to avoid friendship, 
I want to encourage you to put good, godly friendships built on loyalty and honesty and sacrifice on your list of non-negotiables. You see, David would have never been who God made him to be without the friends that God put in his life. And I'm guessing that the same could be said for us. So I want you to pursue good friendships, but I also want to encourage you to be a good friend to someone else. To be a friend of unwavering loyalty. One who sticks through the challenging times to build unbreakable bonds. To be a friend of loving honesty. To have the hard conversations and the courage to love someone through the truth. And to be a friend of lavish sacrifice. To consider what you might give up so that someone else could be who God created them to be. Most of all, I want to encourage you to build your friendship with Jesus who laid down his life so that he could have an eternal relationship with you. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you this morning. And it's not often that we talk from the stage or in a sermon about friendship. But what a valuable gift it is that you have given us to have friends in our lives, people in our lives who will be loyal and honest and sacrificial, who will help us be transformed into who you've created us to be. God, we know that David is not a perfect person, that Jonathan isn't either, that nobody, aside from Jesus, can hold that title of perfect. But in the midst of that, we see these two form a friendship and each become better than they would have been alone. God, specifically, we look at this loyalty they have for each other. And I pray that you too would also help us to be loyal to the friendships that we have. We would not give up easily, cast off relationships, but seek restoration and reconciliation and mutual understanding so that we can build each other up. God, I pray that you would help us to be honest, to speak the hard truths into the friendships that we have, to lavish those with grace and understanding, but to speak those in love so that others might come to hear, to hear Maybe this prophetic word that you've asked us to speak to them as only we can. God, we also want to pray that we would be sacrificial. That's by giving up some of our time, of our energy, some of, of who we are, that we could help someone become who you want them to be. God, most of all, we thank you for Jesus and the sacrifice that he made that we could be called friends of God. And we pray this in Jesus' name.